Hello, listeners. We invite you to sharpen your swords and your minds and join hosts Sam and Clay each week as they delve into the historical context, leadership, and tactics surrounding significant battles and campaigns throughout time. Welcome, welcome to, to the, the Art of War. All right, welcome back, everyone. My name is Sam. And I'm Clay. And this is the Art of War. And we're going to be continuing, wrap, almost wrapping up. We're not completely done, but we're getting to, to the very end of it. The first Sino-Japanese War. Right, yeah. I think we have two or three battles after this. No, maybe, yeah. maybe like two. We could, yeah, we could wrap it up or and like... Uh, compound some of them so it wouldn't be each individual episode but yeah we're pretty we're pretty much at the end this is as you know six to eight months the whole thing goes by and we're, we're pushing the latter months of the the campaign right well which is you know in the japanese plan because they want to finish everything before the winter yeah. hits so mm-hmm. yeah so i guess let's the the last podcast we talked about the battle of the Yalu River and the taking of the fortification of Julian Chang, which was across the Yalu River, and the Japanese, uh, their entry into Manchuria and their their attempt at going to mainland China, mm-hmm. taking control of the actual territories that China themselves control. Yeah. So yeah, right. Taking the Yalu, taking the Yalu River and Julian Chang was a big deal because it pretty much opened up all of Manchuria, which is a very big amount of land um but yeah so it was basically open to the japanese invasion uh yeah there's not really there's not really any more choke points that's like a big problem when you think about it because like korea they could kind of restrict them isolate them from manchuria and then now they've lost control of the Yalu river and they have no really big fortifications that can stop they just, you know, willy-nilly movement of the Japanese. So now they can go wherever they want throughout Manchuria. And you see that playing, like, a pretty big role in this. Because before, you know, the Chinese knew for a fact where they were going. Mm-hmm. They were going to go to Pyongyang. They were going to go to Shanwan. They were going to go to Asan. They were going to go to, you know, they had they only had a, a certain amount of places they go to. Right. But now that Manchuria's opened up, they can go wherever. And the Chinese have to guess where they're going to be going. Yeah. And so. in the Japanese strategy, they have two main targets they want to hit. They want to, of course, capture Mukden, which is this historical Manchurian capital, has a lot of significance to the Qing dynasty, and so they want to attack that, and they also want to completely destroy China's naval power by capturing the very important port of Lushenkao on the Dong Peninsula. Yeah, and the Chinese... Their plan is to diversify their forces to all of these locations. They want to, they want to have some on the south, some on the north. They want to have troops anywhere that could potentially be a target for the Japanese. So right. they initially, after the fall of Liangcheng, they uh, send the majority of their troops back to uh, Lushengquan or Port Arthur, like they call it nowadays Port Arthur. I'm gonna say right. Port That's Arthur. The, it's so much easier. That is to the say. Western name. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so they, they most of their troops move back to Port Arthur, but then they assume that the Japanese are going to be making their attack on Mukden since it's their main capital. So then they split their forces up into three divisions that go to Mukden, uh, Port Arthur, and then some southern territories, fortifications, and in in, in waiting in uh, for the Japanese next move, which comes pretty quickly. Right, and it's unfortunate for the Qing forces because they're really you know, on their back foot, they've had to retreat after loss after loss. So the Baying army is now 
split up into three divisions, which has not worked for them before, as we saw in Julian Chang by splitting up their yeah. forces because their communication is not good enough to have coordinated defense strategies. Yeah, and it's also really sad too because most of the time it's not it's not the you know fault of the soldiers they're they're doing what they're supposed to do it's usually the fault of their leadership yeah that that bail out or make a poor decision that ends up resulting in a loss resulting in, in their death so yeah it's it's pretty sad they're, they've been on their heels constantly and once again they're in the same exact situation that they've been in the past four major battles they're waiting for an attack from the japanese and they're just playing a defensive game so that's probably, yeah, they, I mean, I can't imagine the morale of the soldiers at this time was very high since they've only experienced defeats, right? right? And that comes into play here, too, as well, with um, just quick to retreat and, and mm-hmm. that kind of stuff. But, yeah, and then the Japanese are just functioning very well. At this point, they have the first Japanese army that's on the land and pushing into Manchuria, but they also have now a second Japanese army, right, that's coming from sea, that's landing in Manchuria to help push the port of um, Port Arthur. Yeah. So yeah, they're, they're, it's it's really problematic for uh, China since you know we've said this multiple times. the The Chinese standing army was hundreds of thousands, six hundred you know to eight hundred thousand. But in these instances, they don't have the capability to field that army. Those are just sitting mm-hmm. back home at Mukden. They're sitting back home in, in more central Chinese territories. They're not able to move that quantity of troops, feed them, supply them, give them ammunition. Like as we've seen in the previous battles, they always run out of ammunition. They mm-hmm. always run out of, of food. So it's really difficult for them to even use their full standing army. So even here, they're very close to their home territory. But at their disposal, they only have about 40,000 troops, and that's split three ways, right? Right. So Japan is now starting to see higher numbers in these battles than China is, which is kind of terrifying, or I would find it terrifying if I was a Chinese, since this is a foreign power that's super far from home, and they're now having larger numbers in your central territories than you do. And uh, yeah, they, they can't. They, you know, their only opportunity to stop that is to hold Port Arthur, right, and ensure that they could maybe, maybe keep control of the seas. Mm-hmm. But you know, they have to also bank on the fact that they're going to go to Mukden and send troops there. So, yeah, it's pretty pretty scary to see that that extra force showing up yeah. on the coast. Yeah. So let's talk about Port Arthur and the fortifications there, or Lucian Cow. So it's you know probably one of the most vital ports for the Qing Dynasty. And it was really pretty much recently developed at this time and recently fortified in the 1880s with the help of German engineers. And so at this time in all of China, it's the only port that has the boat docks and capabilities to service and repair the Beiyang fleet, the, you know, the big fortified ships of the Beiyang fleet, their two main cruisers. This is the only place where they can actually repair those. And it's also positioned at a vital port for the Northern Yellow Sea trade routes. So it's super important to the Qing dynasty, and that's why the Japanese recognize it as a vital place to take because one of the main goals is to deplete China of its naval power. And by taking Port Arthur, you pretty much ensure that the Beiyang fleet 
can't ever really reach what it once was. And as a reminder, at the start of this war, the Beiyang fleet was the most powerful naval fleet in all of Asia. And just the Beiyang fleet alone had more ships than the entire Japanese navy. And it's really unfortunate to see that not really come into play at all during this war and how it just kind of had a, you know, a very fast fall from grace. Yeah, and, and Admiral Ding, who's the, the leader of the Bang fleet, he was a very prolific general. He was a very capable at being a naval commander. And like Clay said, it doesn't really he doesn't really even get to use his skills. The only battle that they really get into is the Battle of the Yalu River, which is a surprise attack, and they're not even really able to engage the enemy. And when they do, they run out of ammunition, right? Mm -hmm. So the full power of, just like their, their land army, it's completely... Uh, negated by the fact that the logistics of the the Qing dynasty is just not there. They're not able to y use their their actual created military um, power to its full extent, just because they're not able to 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 supply resources to it. So yeah, that's you know they they treasure it. They they see their their baying fleet as a super important asset, but they're too scared really to use it because they're afraid if they lose it then they're gonna you know have no naval power at all mm -hmm. and they're also you know they think that they're not gonna be able to come up against this massive japanese fleet that's now in two successive battles kind of just shown that they they don't really have much competition other than the Xingwan and the i forget what the other one's called yeah the other major, the other warship, major warship the bang fleet yeah yeah, so the Port Arthur defenses can't rely on any naval support because the Beiyang fleet's just really a shell of its former self, but Port Arthur's pretty well defense. It has a pretty good defensive position, right? It's surrounded by water on mm -hmm. all three sides. It's on this the peninsula, and it has these hills that we've seen in you know previous battles with a bunch of forts on them. And this time, you know, as opposed to Julian Cheng, all of the forts are connected by telephone and telegraph and they're armed with these very well developed german croup guns that are that have specially trained operators that um german military officers trained chinese soldiers to operate these um german artillery units yeah and you know that their their land fortifications were deemed by both the japanese and also the chinese as almost impregnable there was mm -hmm. no really way to get into it because they're surrounded by very, very stout defenses, and also the territory where you would be able to get up close to the walls is very open and would prevent you from getting large amounts of troops to the walls itself. And the only area that really was an Achilles heel to to the, the city of Port Arthur, the fortifications of Port Ar Arthur, is is the harbor, the, the coastal area, right. where that in itself is still very well uh, fortified, but it's not as thickly and as has as much armaments placed on it as the rest of the fort so the chinese expect that is where they're going to be coming from and like clay said they're not able to really rely on their navy which they need like a huge amount they needed especially in this battle right. because that's where they expect that the japanese are going to be coming from but ding the admiral ding he tells uh li Zhang, uh li was it Li Hong Zheng? Li Hong Zheng. He tells Li Hong Zheng that he's going to join up in the battle and he's going to assist on their 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 coastal flank. Mm -hmm. But Li Hong Zheng has been informed by the emperor to not risk their warships. 
So he tells Ding, you got to get out of there. You can't, you're not going to be fighting in this battle. You're going to go back and you're going to retreat. But this, the, the sheer ridiculousness of it, of this whole situation is the fact that Port Arthur is essential, like Clay said, because it is the only port that is able to service their warships, yeah. right? They have the technology, which, the, like, cause, you know, with the, these massive metal warships, you can't just bring them into a dock and then hoist them up and then do work and repair on them. It's They're too large, they weigh too much, so you have to bring them into a gated dry dock, drain it out, right? Mm-hmm. And then you can operate it in this pit. You can operate on it in this pit, right? Nowhere else in China had that. That was a pretty new concept in the world as at, at the time. So they need this port. So them fleeing away with their warships makes no sense because right. that's the only place that they can use their warships. Yeah. But they, you know, Ding puts up a big argument, says, no, we need to fight here. We need to, this, this is important. We have to defend this side, this flank. And basically the emperor and Li Hongzheng say, if you don't want to lose your head, you don't want to die. Uh, we'll execute you if you don't listen. Get out of here. And he he chooses his life and he he dipsets with his his whole fleet. Yeah. So the Beiyang fleet or what remains of it retreats across the Yellow Sea to the Weihai Wei port, uh, which is you know closer to Beijing. But fortunately for Port Arthur, the Second Japanese Army actually doesn't attack the harbor. Um, I don't know mm-hmm. if it was a lack of maybe intelligence on their part they thought it was too heavily defended but they actually land more north up the Laodang peninsula and they push through the entire peninsula taking these fortified towns along the way on their way to port arthur so it seems like i don't know if they made it more difficult on themselves or maybe they wanted just to secure the whole Laodang peninsula because it has some other um important fortified ports and, and towns on there so that's what happens, and the second army, which is under the command of Lieutenant General Yamaji Motoharu, um, lands up northern on the northern coast of the Laodang Peninsula and begins to push in. A little side note about Yamaji Motoharu: his nickname—I don't know if you read this, Sam—but it was—he's called the the Doku Ganryu, which means the one-eyed dragon because he was actually blind <laughs> in one eye. <laughs> oh, that's yeah! A cool I saw a picture of him, and he actually is blind in one eye. Um, So I thought that was pretty cool. The one I dragged him. Yeah. And like you were saying, you know, the thing that's even more interesting to me about the fact that even, you know, after they take all these little towns and stuff, they continue with their strategy of moving by land to, to make their, their frontal assault and not the ocean is because when they take, uh, I think it's, I believe it's, it's uh, Jinzo. Mm -hmm. It's, it's a small walled town, walled fortification. Uh, A lot of these, little forts and towns they didn't really have to fight to take because once the chinese saw them coming they had been informed to retreat back to uh port arthur so there was little resistance they just take them and in one of them i believe it was jinzu the soldiers there had not the forethought to just destroy all their information or or to take it with them so they left a bunch of their like battle plans and the blueprints of port arthur Mm -hmm. and so uh, Yamaji Motoharu, he gets hold of 
basically the whole fortification of Port Arthur, where their weaknesses are, where their artillery is set up. He also gets a, a sheet that shows the minefields that are placed on the outside walls. So, like, you'd think if you had all of that knowledge, you would be even more, you know, uh, willing to attack by the ocean. But they just, I, they, I, from what I was reading, they don't really care. Like, yeah. they get that information, and they're like, okay, that's just going to help us make our front row land assault. They don't even take into account that they could maybe go for a naval attack yeah it is a little interesting um i'm not i i'm actually not too sure why i think i don't know they did want to i believe they did want to control the entire peninsula and maybe that went into it um Mm -hmm. because they pushed down more into another key port which is um what is it called dahlia dalian dalian yeah, and they capture that and make that a naval base for Japan. So they kind of base their operations from there for the attack of Port Arthur. Um, but it is interesting. I don't know. And another side note, because you mentioned that they got the map of the minefield. At this time, the Qing forces, for some reason, really liked mines. Like, they put mines everywhere in this area, and <laughs> yeah, they were yeah. not very successful at all. They really, I don't yeah. think a single Japanese death was attributed to a mine. Yeah, I was trying to I was trying to actually look that up. I think two battles ago because we should have brought it up. But there, yeah, that's that was a big tactic in this time period was using mines. Mm-hmm. Like even though tanks didn't exist, it was you know for land personnel, it was a really good way of preventing them from crossing an open field or, or stopping troops when you couldn't have troops there to stop them themselves, right? And there's like no reports of soldiers dying from mines. So either the Japanese just didn't include it in their reports, but also while this is all transpiring, there was uh, like foreign diplomats, foreign uh, like news, news. What is that called? What are they called? I don't know. Uh, Correspondents. Uh, there was foreign news correspondents that were trailing behind the Japanese. So mm-hmm. you think they would even report about these mine deaths. But I guess the Japanese were just so capable at either detecting them. I don't know how they did it at the time. I'm not yeah. well versed in that. But yeah, that's it doesn't even play a role like at all yeah. throughout the entire war. The only is crazy. <laughs> the only things that I've read is that one mine went off. And it's actually depicted in a Chinese um, painting of a battle. And that mine is attributed to a, I think they said a luckless dog stepped on it. Oh, and no. only the dog perished. Yeah. Oh, that's sad. Yeah, well, yeah, that's that's pretty much how the, uh, the Chinese had planned out their whole mm-hmm. strategy to go into the Japanese was just, you know, to stop them in every, every which way. And then, you know, just like the mines, nothing is working at all. And even though the Japanese at this time know that they should make a ocean attack they choose not to they go by land probably because they just have been so success so successful in the previous instances that and now they have overwhelming numbers you know and maybe they're just whatever we'll we'll go with by land i think continuing you know it when we look at their strategy maybe it makes a little more sense because the japanese strategy developed by yamaji motoharu is to take the defensive forts surrounding port arthur with those, you know, reinforced German artillery units. And then from once, like, you take the forts one by one, then, as we saw in Pyongyang, you can just kind of fire into Port Arthur until Mm -hmm. the Qing forces surrender. So maybe that was the idea of doing the ground assault, is just to take the forts, because, yeah, they could have taken Port Arthur through the harbor, but then they could have gotten bombarded by the artillery on the forts. That's true. They probably still would have had to go on and taken taken those forts anyway. So it's yeah. It's just I guess it's a different approach. It just it 
it's also it could have been that the chinese wouldn't expect a land attack you know that yeah. probably played into it so i guess let's get into what what actually occurs right in the battle so yeah so the lieutenant general yamaji motoharu the one-eyed dragon is kind of directing things but there's a major general that's actually leads the main brunt of the attack on port arthur and that's uh nogi marasuki and he's a commander of the first infantry brigade and maybe a little bit side note about him he is an interesting character i don't know if you read about him at all but um he apparently wanted to commit seppuku which is like the traditional samurai mm-hmm. suicide like multiple times during his military career because he like he thought he had atoned for all these different mistakes that he thought he made um and he actually eventually did commit seppuku after, at the funeral of the emperor meiji um oh, wow. yeah it was it was interesting and he had like a suicide note or a suicide poem that he wrote about it and he became like this big symbol of loyalty and sacrifice so i'm not <laughs> i'm not even sure i feel like this might actually have been one of the spurs that kind of started that um die for your country yeah. mentality that led to you know kamikaze pilots and a lot like that because it's very controversial in even japan at the time because it was a very almost outdated thing to commit suicide in, in this traditional way but um yeah, he was a very yeah. prominent military leader. Yeah, I mean, the whole concept of, like, uh, dying for your emperor, dying for your country, like, that extreme loyalism, that all starts with the Meiji period. Mm-hmm. Like, because, like we were talking about before, prior, it was uh, the daimyos ruled the country. It was multiple different, you know, factions. But now they're all super unbelievably loyal to this, essentially, god king or god emperor. And, yeah, you like, that's also a big part of why these these soldiers are like so dead set on winning every single battle is because they believe they're doing it for their emperor their 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 god king and they're doing it for their country right so yeah this whole meiji period kind of just revitalizes the national pride of the japanese and then which is weird because you think if you had national pride you wouldn't want to be killing yourself but i guess it's like they believe they've done such a wrong that would be so uh, egregious if they went back home that they just have to get out of there mm. kill themselves yeah but yeah so take us through the battle and um you know it's i didn't find too many details on it you know besides them yeah, taking they, the forts yeah so initially what happens is this is like a big strategy of the the japanese army is they like to employ napoleonic techniques which was you know you 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 go forward you have a frontal attack and then you lead with a flanking maneuver mm-hmm. right you see that with pyongyang you see that with uh, julian chang so that's once again the approach they're going to take but you know this is just it's the saddest thing it always happens yeah. uh when they approach the fortifications and they're showing their their numbers and they're going it's it's like at towards the night of the the uh the 21st or the 20th of bad. november <clears throat> Of November, yes, the the twentieth of November, eighteen ninety four, they start moving towards the fortifications. They're planning to make their their full frontal attack, and the officers of the Chinese military, the generals that were within, within the walls of Port Arthur, see this this coming force, and they withdraw. <laughs> they take these little boats that are that are in the port in the harbor, and they withdraw. They, they get out of there and they leave these five to 10,000 troops by themselves with no no leaders, no officers right. 
to defend. But like we saw in Julian Chang in the previous battles, they're not very loyal to these to their their leader. They're not willing to give their life for their country. So they start to try to retreat. But at this point, the entire Port Arthur has been surrounded. It's mm-hmm. been completely outflanked. So they they have the option now to get on the walls, to use the artillery and the, the the weapons they have to defend the city, or they can try to save themselves. And they choose the latter, and they all discard their clothing. They put on cultural Chinese garb, civilian garb, and they try to blend in with the population. Because right. Port Arthur, Port Arthur was a it wasn't huge, but it wasn't a small city. Yeah, it had it so had a couple was, thousand citizens. Yeah. It had, you know, like a, a population of about 20,000-ish, mm-hmm. right? So there was the, the main force of 20,000 soldiers and then the, the civilian population, population about 20. Right. So they were trying to hopefully blend in, you know, maybe go to some homes, chill out, like I'm an uncle, you know, or I'm a, I'm a brother or something. And so when the Japanese get to the walls, it's just like Julian Chang. There's like no fighting. They're, they just are able to climb over the walls and get into the city and open up the gates. Yeah, and right? yeah, just like Julian Chang, all of the fighting happened in taking those first couple of yep. forts outside of the town. That's where all the fighting happened and where all the Japanese fatalities were. Yeah, and it's it's once again it's it's super sad, especially whenever the Chinese themselves believe this city to be just like Julian Chang, like impregnable. They were they were not expecting it to even fall like, you know, within weeks. Right. It was supposed to hold out for a very, very long time. And within the first sign of of conflict, the leadership just leaves. Yeah. Just like uh, Song Ching when in Julian Chang, they they the they just abandon their troops immediately. And it's really sad because, like, imagine what they could have done with that yeah, that fortification because they, they weren't they did they didn't even get to see how the land right. battle would have progressed. I mean, I, and even in you know the Japanese general Yamaji Motoharu and his plans, he had accounted for thousands of fatalities taking yeah. this port because of how well fortified it was, and they ended up capturing pretty much all of it with I think only eighty casualties and you know some wounded, and that was only from capturing the forts outside of the port. Yeah, and then you're, I know you're really excited to talk about this. Well, but what I wouldn't say excited, excited not, yeah, not, in a, a, not a positive, but it's it's an interesting conversation that you were you wanted to present. Yeah, because so. the battle is not a, what's interesting about yeah. this point in history. It's really what happens after the battle, this aftermath. Uh, but yeah, so the Japanese army is able to walk into Port Arthur, and then upon entering this the city. They are greeted with a sight of Japanese prisoners of war that have been brutally tortured and mutilated by the Qing troops before they fled. Um, I think, you know, from because this this battle is really where we get the this Western um, account, I guess, because there are a lot of almost like war correspondents and people and there's like three main um westerners that were there kind of documenting what happened and so from their account we're able to learn about this massacre that happens after the battle so the japanese soldiers see some of their brothers in arms that are disemboweled you know some their eyes are gouged out hands are cut off 
and the corpses were hung from the trees. From the accounts I read, it totaled almost, I think, 13 Japanese mm-hmm. soldiers. Um, and so the Japanese army that's there kind of loses their composure completely and go on a rampage through this, this city and just start killing Chinese citizens indiscriminately. And it's, uh, it's a, it lasts for five days and it's a pretty brutal massacre. Yeah. And, and it's, they didn't, you know, they, they claim that the reason that they were going through the streets, killing everyone is they're trying to seek out the soldiers. But in the end they kill about, I mean, the numbers differ. Some say that it's like in the 60,000, some say it's in the 40,000, but they pretty much kill every single person in the city. And there was women and children in the city. It wasn't solely soldiers. So they were just indiscriminately going around murdering any single Chinese individual they could. And what's crazy about that is, is that the Japanese were part of the Geneva Convention of the the 1860s, right? Mm-hmm. Which states that they're supposed to, if they ever take a prisoner of war, they're supposed to treat them well. You know, they're supposed to either send them back to their their original country if they need uh, medical assistance, or they will take them in and treat them themselves, right? right. And they, they held true to that for the longest time. But then the instant that they see, you know, this something that they were already aware of, because in the previous battles, Pyongyang and, and such, they would see that the Chinese who were not part of the Geneva Convention were not treating Japanese soldiers well, prisoners of war, right? right. But just in this one battle, I guess maybe it was a culmination of this bubbling of anger, mm-hmm. they go in and they start brutally murdering everyone. And then, you know, usually after that happens, you kind of see the soldiers or you see the country feeling remorseful for their actions. You know, it's like kind of like a, a stain on their reputation right. and they're not happy with it. But when I was reading... There's like a very large amount of diary entries from Japanese soldiers after this occurred, and they're all in like a positive light. Like they're happy that it occurred. Like I'm going to read one because I just find this one just remarkable that this guy wrote this down. It's like, wow. He says, as we entered the town of Port Arthur, we saw the head of a Japanese soldier displayed on a wooden stake. This filled us with rage and a desire to crush any Chinese soldier. Anyone we saw in town, we killed. The streets were filled with corpses. So many, they blocked our way. We killed people in their homes, by and large. There wasn't a single house without from three to six dead. Mm-hmm. Blood was flowing, and the smell was awful. We sent out search parties. We shot some, hacked at others. The Chinese dro- troops just dropped their arms and fled, firing and slashing. It was unbounded joy. At this time, our artillery troops were at the rear, giving three cheers, bonsai, for the emperor. Like... He's not remorseful at all. No. He's very, you know, it sounds like he he's relishing this this experience that he has. And it's like, wow, that's that's really brutal. I this kind of is where you see like the first real like extreme brutality between the two, China and Japan, which goes yeah. on, you know, for years and has gone on for for the past, but like yeah. man, I want to I want to read just a little excerpt as well from one of the western reporters that was there too. And it it is because, yeah, I'll just read it. It was a relief to get away from that flood of fiendish exultation, to escape from the effusive glee of our former friends who would overwhelm us with their attention, which we wanted like caresses from the ghouls of hell. To have to remain among men who could do what we had seen was little short of torture. Yeah, like, it's just, wow. And, And according to the correspondent, the American correspondent, there was only 36 people that survived the massacre yeah. of, you know, 
tens of thousands of people. 36. That's how bad how bad they got them. And there's it's like, well, wow. there's even, you know, talking about them not being really apologetic. There's even a woodblock art depicting the Japanese yeah. army killing mm-hmm. Chinese prisoners, beheading them. Yeah, and that's it's so bizarre. I mean, I might go on like a tangent here, but I found this <laughs> this this is super interesting when I was reading about about the whole like propaganda both side had because you know we were talking about how at, at uh, Julian Chang there was wood art that showed the Chinese victorious even though mm-hmm. they got just destroyed. Yeah. It it was because the Chinese at the time their propaganda efforts were because they had no you know they didn't have. A, a large-scale uh, mm. communications network. So people in mainland China were, you know, hearing about this stuff from f- Chinese sources. They weren't getting, you know, American sources or Canadian sources. So the Chinese government, the Qing, Qing Dynasty, was telling everyone in mainland China that they were winning all these battles so that they would keep them loyal to the cause, right? Mm-hmm. But in actuality, they were losing, you know, very, very hard. So they were making all this art and all this stuff to try to convince their population that they were being successful, even though they weren't. And the Japanese plan was to actually tell the world what was happening. They, they were brought in foreign correspondence. And it's crazy because their strategy originally was that they wanted to be viewed as civilized. They wanted to be viewed as as equal to Canada, you know, England, right. America. They wanted to be one of those global powerhouses. And... Prior to this war starting, Japan had just gone through the Meiji Revolution. Prior to that, they were isolationists. So the rest of the world viewed them as kind of like, you know, barbaric because they didn't have any technologies. So you see America and all these countries calling them very profane and disparaging names and news articles. And they were hoping to change that by by this war and bring these correspondents in. But then while they have these correspondents, they're doing things like this. Yeah whenever they're supposed to be openly against that because of the Geneva Convention. So it's really weird that they even would allow that, but I guess maybe they didn't have control of it. But they don't even repent. They don't even really apologize on a global scale. And the craziest thing about it is, is the rest of the world doesn't care. <laughs> they really they really don't care. There's not like a, a big public outrage in America or in England. Yeah, uh, they, it does. I think it does. Well, it does hurt Japan's image a, yeah. a bit. For the whole Western world, but I mean, yeah, they don't lose any treaties or any alliances yeah. or, or any relationships over this, and it's really almost a prelude to what how Japan uh, acts in the Second Sino-Japanese War, where it's mm-hmm. a lot more brutal, and there's you know the Nanking Massacre, which is happens during that war, which is much of the same kind of thing, where the Japanese just brutally kill an entire Chinese town. Yeah, and and it's bizarre too because you see that that complete shift from the big developed countries seeing Japan as inept. Now they see them as technologically advanced, as like this superior nation, this techno, uh, this uh, this militarily just extremely well prepared and logistically well developed country. And then they you see the opinion of china going from they were a very you know except excluding england the england didn't like china but they they saw china as very civilized and and equal to other world powers now they see china as inept and incapable and they become what they used to view japan as and it this is in six months right Mm -hmm. and this is also from a few correspondents that are just following around the the japanese 
so they they do a very good job of their propaganda in in japan and their their news coverage of it because it shifts like you know that's the period where everybody starts viewing japan as actually like a powerhouse that they can actually accomplish things that nobody but you know i mean aside from their propaganda they have the success to back it up it's only been uh, you know five months and they've pushed china completely out of the korean peninsula and they've humiliated china on their home territory of manchuria and yeah so it's yeah the japanese are definitely showing that they are much more advanced military wise yep yeah and just another side note is uh one of the accounts i was reading of the after the capture of jin Zhao, that little fortified town major sato who we've talked about in past battles um captured a chinese um I think a Chinese scout that was trying to kill himself and he assured the scout that he was like, Oh no, no, no. The Japanese military does not kill their prisoners. And then, you know, a couple of days later, the, the massacre at Port Arthur happens. So. Yeah. And it, it, you know, the, you saying that brings up another part of the Japanese propaganda was after, I believe it was Pyongyang or it might've been a son. They took Japan took 600 Chinese prisoners of war and they brought them back to Japan and they treated them of their wounds and gave them like very nice accommodations and fed them and treated them like citizens of the Japanese nation. And then they brought in correspondents like uh, from America and, uh, and, and Canada and they had them interview these Chinese soldiers. And the Chinese soldiers were all saying, you know, how could you ever resist these guys? They're such great people. They treat us so well. <laughs> and then like two months later they go and commit it's just like a straight just extreme massacre yeah it's like wow you know i don't i don't know i don't know about that <laughs> it's pretty pretty uh pretty big yeah change. it's definitely it's pretty grim ending to this battle but uh it's definitely important to talk about in this context but yeah so after this um yeah china you know is really on their back foot they're retreated across the yellow sea pretty much giving up this major port and all of the control of the yellow sea to the japanese and japan's not done yet you know china still hasn't sought a peace treaty so japan's still gonna you know capture capture more towns and more more of the territory yeah that's what they're looking for now the japanese they're looking for some kind of negotiation to open up so they can you know secure some deal mm-hmm. and put it into the war but it's it's like why would you want that you know like i feel like if you were conquering china and you were having such an extremely successful campaign in such a short period of time you're never really running out of resources because you're taking all these fortifications they have resources of themselves and now your numbers are getting larger and you're securing all these important assets like i, I wouldn't want a negotiation you know i just keep going right but right. they 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 make it clear that they want, you know, they want to sue for peace to some extent, but China's unwilling still at this point, even though they're pretty much in central China almost. Yeah. And I did read after this battle, I don't know if you read it as well, but Li Hongzing was stripped of his official titles yep. after this humiliating defeat. So he's not really in command of the Beiyang army or the Beiyang fleet anymore, the fleet and army that he created and funded. He lost control of that. Yeah, and he he has the same kind of uh, situation as the previous general, who he's kind of given the 
ultimatum of we're going to kill you, you know, because of, of, of what you've done. But mm-hmm. there's one way out and you got to, you know, you got to give us money. You got to have some some nice uh, ties to important individuals. And that's what happens to Lee Hong Jang. He basically was going to be executed. But because he was wealthy and he knew people, right. he avoids that. And it's like, you know, you guys aren't picking very good generals. Yeah. <laughs> they all keep yeah. running. You got to get you got to get somebody that's I like. What was the guy's name? The uh, the Muslim general that kills himself oh or he he doesn't kill himself but But he he fights to the death yeah that's who they should have appointed as their general yeah it was like batal no was it but but whatever yeah he should have he should have been their general yeah i have a note that's like three episodes ago yeah well (laughs) but yeah i think that's all i had um but yeah so japan is now going to push across the yellow sea to attempt to destroy the Beiyang fleet once for all at the port of Weiha Ye? Weiha Wei? Weiha Wei. Yeah. Weiha Wei. And that's where we're going next. Yep. And so that that's like the the first major conflict in Manchuria. Yeah. And then it, it you know, I guess let's the the numbers wise, you know, the entire standing forces of the Chinese were eradicated that were still in the walls, which was about 5,000 right. uh, Chinese, and then the, who knows, twenty to 40,000 civilians, and then the Japanese only lose 40 soldiers of their 15,000 yep. in that con- confrontation. That, that's what you would call a crushing victory. Yep. Yep. Yeah, I think that's that's about it. Yeah, this is a grim ending to this episode. But truly, yeah, I mean, reading about the massacre of Port Arthur is just, yeah, especially because for, you know, a while after the battle, even some of the correspondents that were there were disputing it because they actually feared the Japanese forces and feared that if they talked about this, they would face retribution and, you know, be killed themselves. So, yep. I would be pretty scared too. Yeah. (laughs) I would probably not report the correct numbers. (laughs) Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, but yeah, I mean, what's also, I guess, the last little point is that the news coming from China that was spreading across the world, the ones like that they had won Pyongyang or they had won Sean Wan or Julian Chang, that has all been, up until this point, you know, some countries would say that's actually what's happening and other countries would say, okay, that's not what's happening. And you would be, you'd see countries choosing between the Japanese narrative or you'd see them choosing between the Chinese narrative. But now after this battle, it became, it becomes pretty much just Japanese's, um, their, their stories and their news is what gets spread to the rest of the world. Nobody really Mm -hmm. believes China anymore because now they have these foreign correspondents that are actually seeing it. And so, Japan becomes like the key source of information about the war after this point. Yeah. Well, um, actually, uh, we did not do our rating last episode. I, I oh, did we? For- I yeah, I forgot to do it. Oh, um, no. But that's okay. <laughs> we, we have to delete it. We have to delete, delete the it, re-upload it. Yeah. But <laughs> yeah. I mean, we could do this one. There's, I guess, because the thing with this whole, you know, Sino-Japanese war is there, it's just really been one-sided. So yeah it's kind of hard too because a lot of these battles aren't even battles you know they're yeah. kind of just like surrenders without surrendering so you don't see big conflict and much strategy involved right so i don't know it's so hard 
Yeah. To rate it. That's probably why we forgot to rate it. Yeah, it probably is. Well, we're going to rate... I'm going to rate this one on the massacre as, like... I don't know. Very... Uh, very bad. Yeah, you can't rate it good. That'd be really messed no. up. Just like a... I don't know. Yeah. It's just bad, I guess. I don't know how that translates <laughs> to pig. It's bad piggy. It's, <laughs> it's bad, bad piggy. piggy. Yes. It's it's Peppa Pig. No, that's, that's what it okay. is. Peppa <laughs> <What>? Pig. Bad, <laughs> it's a bad, bad piggy. Have you seen that show? It shows terrible. <laughs> oh my gosh. It's for children. Peppa Pig. I know. You shouldn't think it's good if it's for children. I'm not, but I'm yes, not endorsing it. I'm going to say I'm endorsing it. I'm going to say it's Peppa Pig. All right. You gotta give your rating. Mine's Peppa Pig. I don't know, some mutated pig monster. That's what this rating gets. But wouldn't you want that? That's a good like what you know. The whole thing is based off of the the flaming pig strategy. Yeah, no one, wouldn't that be a good strategy no to have one, a giant flaming pig? No one wants to fight next to a huge pig mutant monster. Yeah, but it would also be really good at fighting the other side. It'd be a giant pig monster. <laughs> All right, I'm done with this conversation. <laughs> See, but Peppa Pig wouldn't make a good he wouldn't make a good uh, ally in a fight. He's just a little pig, a little Peppa Pig. Uh, I'm on it. All right. All right. I'm done. Yeah, Thanks for listening, we're, we're everybody. Done. Yeah, check us out next check week. Check us out next week. Adios. Hi listeners. We hope you're enjoying the podcast. And if you are, make sure to follow us on all of our social medias. You can find our social medias in the description on our Spotify page. If you enjoyed what you heard, make sure to check out our sister podcast, Gray Skies. Each week, the host Eliza talks about a different national disaster that happened in recent history. And hopefully we're going to be able to collaborate with her. Yeah, so look forward to that.